We are beginning a new series this week where we're going to go through the book of Ecclesiastes together. And uh, if you were here in the fall, you'll remember that we had a very uh, practical series on sort of working out the gospel in our lives. And it was very much about how does the gospel change our hearts and change our behavior, change the way we live, affect the way we live. Today, uh, we're beginning this series on Ecclesiastes to wrestle with how, excuse me, apologize for that, uh, how the gospel affects the way you think. How does it affect the way you look at the world? How does it affect the way you understand reality? So, if you are like a really practical person, a really like you love very concrete stuff, last fall was awesome for you. But if you're kind of a little more abstract, you like ideas, kind of an egghead kind of person a little bit, this winter might be a little bit more for you. But hopefully, it's going to be good for all of us, right? Now, the book of Ecclesiastes is kind of a weird book. Uh, because when you read Scripture, when you open the Bible, what you discover is that the Bible is very often uh, trying to teach us something, right? It's trying to answer questions for us, tell us how we're supposed to live, how to resolve problems and deal with life and all that kind of stuff. But when you get to the book of Ecclesiastes, you don't quite get that, even though that's sort of what you expect. In verse 1 of the, of the, of the opening passage, it says, yes, the words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. We're going to listen to a teacher. And of course, when you listen to a teacher, usually you're expecting a teacher to tell you something important and give you answers to the questions of life and that kind of thing. But as you read the book of Ecclesiastes, as you go through it further and further and further, what you discover is, is that it does not actually answer a lot of questions. Instead, what it does is it poses them. The book of Ecclesiastes is a book of questions. This mysterious figure, the teacher, is using questions over and over and over again to make us think, to make us reflect, to make us examine our lives. Some of you may have heard of a guy named Socrates, pretty famous Greek philosopher, right? He once said that the unexamined life is not worth living. And many, many years before Socrates even came on the, on the scene, the teacher of Ecclesiastes said the exact same thing. And here's the problem. Most of us are not like that. Most of us don't really examine our lives all that closely. We just kind of, we kind of live, you know, we kind of, we kind of exist. We kind of go through life, not really wondering the, about the big questions, but just kind of, we're all like, like lemmings or drones or something, right? You know, we all get up, you ever see, you ever, I always think this, like I, I have the privilege of not having to drive to work, really. I haven't had to for a while, so sometimes, you know, I watch the news, and then they do the traffic report, and I see all these drones on the freeway, right? We're all driving to work, and we're all getting on the go train or whatever, and then we're all driving back, and we're living in these high towers, you know, under these fluorescent lights, and, and we're not thinking about what's the point of it all. The, the farthest we get is, is the point is that I can make some money so that I can do what I want with my time on the weekend. That seems to be as far as we go, and as I've been spending the last year or two um, engaging more and more with uh, what, what you could call non-believers, non-Christians, non-religious people in, in town and in other places, I've discovered that's very, very true. When I ask questions about like, 
the meaning of life, oftentimes I get a kind of a blank sort of stare, like, I don't know what the meaning of life is. We can't figure out the meaning of life, therefore let's just live. Well, what we hope to do over the next few weeks is we hope to wrestle with big questions in life as the teacher from the book of Ecclesiastes encourages us to do. And these are questions that thinkers throughout history have wrestled with. These are the ones that the philosophers uh, get paid big bucks to really think about. Okay, not big bucks, but uh, that's what philosophers sit around wrestling with, questions of existence and that kind of thing. But what we're going to do is we're going to see how the, the author or how the teacher in Ecclesiastes poses these questions... And then how the gospel in the New Testament, in the coming of Jesus, there is an answer to these questions. So these things are, these are things that the, that the teacher, he saw answers to in a, a kind of a vague and amorphous sort of way, but in the coming of Jesus, they become very clear and concrete and, and opaque, meaning you can see them very, very plainly in front of you. So that's that's what we're going to do. And before we, we jump into today's topic, just let me, uh, where are we here? Yeah, we're still on introduction to the book, if you're following your, uh, your outline. Before we uh, jump into sort of the subject matter for this morning, let me just uh, deal with this one issue. The question is, who is the teacher? In verses 1 and 2, of, or verse 1, of course, it, the assumption is that it's Solomon, Right? It says the words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Well, who's that wise guy who wrote uh, Proverbs and was the son of David? Well, that's obviously Solomon. And when you read verses 12 and 13 where it says, I was king over Israel and Jerusalem and I devoted myself to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven, it seems to support that. There are other reasons, and I'm not going to get into those reasons, but there are other reasons to think that possibly... Uh, he's not, Solomon is not the author uh, of Ecclesiastes, um, but the point is actually not, is it Solomon or is it a Solomonic figure, meaning a very wise teacher, is it him or is it someone else? The point is actually this, the figure who wrote Ecclesiastes, the teacher of Ecclesiastes is extremely wise, he has great authority and power. He has tremendous wealth, and therefore, when you put all these sort of things together, the, the, the book wants us to know that the teacher is uniquely qualified to talk about these issues, to wrestle through these questions. He has far more brain power than you and I do. He has far more money than you and I do. He has far more power and authority and experience than you and I do. This is not some Yahoo who just decided to start their blog, right? And, and, you know, anybody can blog, and, and he's, you know, you discover that this, uh, this person who's blogging about parenting, let's say, you know, it turns out that they're a 19-year-old teenager, college student or something. Uh, it, it, that's not what the scoop is here. This guy is well-qualified. He has the credentials to speak with authority on these issues. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to agree with what he says. Maybe you won't. But you can't say, well, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Because he most certainly does. If it's Solomon, Solomon probably wrote parts of it anyway, then he is the wisest man, according to Scripture anyway, that has ever lived, other than Jesus Christ himself. Okay, so 
We've got a very, very wise teacher exploring the most fundamental questions of existence, and we get to learn from him. So let's do that right now. What's the subject? What's the, the issue that the, uh, that the teacher is addressing here right at the beginning? Well, it's right here in verse 2. It says, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. Wow. What a nice opening to the book, eh? What you need to understand is, is that in Hebrew literature, it's very common to uh, put the, the, the thing of emphasis right at the start, okay? So I don't know, any of you guys here, any of you guys ever watched Columbo? You remember Columbo? We're pretty young in this room, but there's some of us old enough to remember Columbo, right? So Columbo was this kind of frumpy detective guy. He always looked dumb, but he was smarter than everybody in the room. And at the beginning of every episode of Columbo, you would witness a murder, and you would see who'd done it. And then you'd spend the rest of the movie watching Columbo figure out who'd done it and catch him, right? Well, in Hebrew literature, you get the conclusion at the beginning. So the conclusion that the teacher in Ecclesiastes has come to after all his reflection and exploration, etc., is this, life is utterly meaningless. There is no point to it. That's it. And you want to say, like, really? Like, everything is meaningless, teacher? Yes, everything. Everything? Yes. So, like, money? Yes. Okay. Pleasure? Yes. All right, well, what about relationships? Like, you know, falling in love and getting married? Meaningless. Ah. Okay, but look at this cute little baby. Well, being a parent, a new parent, teacher? Really? Eh, means nothing. He's like a total downer. What about helping the poor? That's got to have meaning, doesn't it? No. But taking care of the environment? Recycling. Not at all. Everything, he says, is completely and utterly meaningless. And as you listen to it and think about it, you want to laugh, because if you don't laugh, you'll cry. He seems such a downer, right? You just want to say, there, there, teacher. What you need is a good chamomile tea and We'll tuck you into bed and a good night's sleep, and hopefully everything will be better in the morning. Because it's, it's very depressing, this, this beginning. But for the next four chapters, okay, of the book of Ecclesiastes, he is going to hammer and hammer and hammer on this idea that there is absolutely nothing meaningful in, in uh, existence. And that word, actually, that word meaningless itself, it's kind of a tricky word. Uh, it's this unique Hebrew word. That means breath, and it has been translated throughout the centuries in all kinds of different ways. It's been translated vanity. You know, for vanity, vanity, all is vanity. That's the King James Version. Uh, it's been translated as empty or useless or absurd or enigmatic or incomprehensible. Probably incomprehensible and meaningless are kind of the closest to it, all right? But in the end, in verse 18, he says, look, for with much wisdom comes much sorrow, the, mo the more knowledge, the more grief. He basically says, the more I thought about it, the more depressed I became about it because I can't figure it out. It is the ultimate ri riddle of life. What's the point of being here? Why are we here? After all my thinking, all my conclusion, I've come to discover there is no point. 
Amen. Let us pray. Go home, go to bed, don't ever wake up, right? It's pretty depressing. Why would he say that? Why does he feel that way? Well, verse 3 helps us. He says this, What does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Now, the word gain is actually a word that's unique to this book, the book of Ecclesiastes. It's the only place you'll find it. And it means profit, what's left over. And this is what the, 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 the teacher has discovered. He says this, look, you're all very busy. I know you're busy. You're all working very, very hard. You're all doing, doing all kinds of stuff. You know, you're getting an education. You're playing sports. You're hanging out with friends. You're going to work every day. You're buying a house or paying a mortgage or paying rent or whatever. You're having kids and you're raising them and you're doing, 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 doing. And he says, at the end of the day, he says, when it's all done, what do you have to show for all that doing? What does it actually accomplish? What difference are you making? And his answer is nothing. You know, uh, you know the Greek myth of Sisyphus? You guys familiar with Sisyphus? Sisyphus? Got it the first time. Sisyphus. It's the guy who, because he thought he was smarter than the gods, Zeus said, all right, you think you're so important? Here's what you're going to do. You're going to take a ball, you're going to take a rock, you're going to roll it up a hill, and just before you get to the top of the hill, it's going to roll back down, you're going to walk back down, and you're going to grab the, the rock, and you're going to roll it up the hill, and just before it gets to the top, it's going to roll back down. And it's the story of this guy, Sisyphus, who is condemned to lead a meaningless life where he just rolls a rock up a hill and then back down, and then rolls it up a hill and then back down. And the, and the, the author to Ecclesiastes is, says, that's what life is basically like. It's pointless and meaningless. You just do it over, do stuff over and over and over again, and there's nothing to show for it at the end. Now, why would that be? Why would life be so meaningless? And he gives three reasons in this text that, that describe why. So first of, first of all, he says life is meaningless because of what it says in verse 11. He says, there is no remembrance of men of old, and even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. And what he's saying is, is your life is meaningless because in the grand scheme of history, your life doesn't matter. In the grand scheme of human history and civilized history, you will be forgotten. See, people, people say, look, I want to make a difference in the world. Maybe it's a, a student getting ready to go off to college or university or something and they're figuring out what they want to do with their lives and they say, you know what, I want to I help people. I want to improve the world. I want to do good. I want to leave. I want to make an impact. I want to have a lasting legacy. And the teacher says, give me a break. You're not going to make a dent in the world and you're not going to be remembered. How many of us here know the name of our great-great-great-grandfather? Nobody? One. One person here. Most of us don't even know what they did. Most of us barely know the names of our great-grandfather. I don't even know the name of my great-grandfather. I, I know the name of my grandfather, but it's like some weird Dutch name. I don't even think it's a name. It's a word for grandfather. And, and you have no clue what they did. 
Because basically after 40 years, once you, like when you die, you're forgotten. 40 years passes, you know, there's no, there's no record of who you are and what you've done. And you say, well, uh, you know what, that's not going to be me. I'm going to make a lot of money and I'm going to um, give it to a school and they're going to build like a, a wing of that school, like a business school or a hospital or something and put my name on it. Fine. So you'll be remembered for maybe 400 years. Good for you. Think of even the most significant people in history. Buddha, Muhammad, Aristotle, Plato. Those are the guys on the front of your bulletin. A thousand years, maybe some of the most important you don't know of. Do you know who Herodotus is? Do you know who Archimedes is? You know vague words, but you don't know what they've done. And the reason is, is because we're all going to be forgotten one day. That's what the author is saying. That's why your life is meaningless. But it's worse than that. Let's keep going. There's another reason your life is meaningless and all life is meaningless. And it's described in verses 4 through 6. Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. Basically, what the teacher is saying is that time eats up everything. Or it erases everything. Because we live in this indifferent universe, okay? Now, you've got to understand, he's speaking from a perspective, and this is really important to understand. I know I'm introducing it pretty late in the game here, but you need to understand, he's describing life from a particular perspective. In verse 3, when he says, what does man gain from all his labor? He says, at which he toils under the sun. And that's a term that you're going to see him use over and over and over again in the book. He, he talks about life under the sun. And what he means by that is, is this is life lived from a completely horizontal perspective. He means that, that, that he's looking at life from, from, from the perspective as though there is no eternal aspect, there is no time beyond time, there is no spiritual reality behind the phys physical world we see. He's looking at life as a at least practical, what's called materialist. A materialist is a person who says, look, all there is, is that which we can see with our eyes or at least measure with some instruments and discover through our senses, okay, which is a very modern way of living. There are lots of people who say, okay, I believe in God, but what they mean by that is there's got to be something out there that I don't know anything about and is completely irrelevant to my life, and therefore they live as a practical materialist. They live as the teacher is describing life here. And what he's saying is, is look, in the grand scheme of time, in the grand scheme of the universe, you are utterly insignificant. Assume that macroevolution is true, okay? The idea that the universe is 14 billion years old. If that's true, the 80 years of existence that you have in the midst of this 14 billion year old universe is less time than a blink. You are, you are a nanosecond of significance in the midst of this sea of time. Look, planets are born and planets die. Solar systems 
are created and then they implode into non-existence into black holes and stuff like that and it all just keeps going and it's completely and utterly indifferent to you. Whether you are here or not means nothing to the grand universe. So for example, what is one of our greatest concerns that we have right now? Climate change. You hear about it all the time. We need to address how we treat the world and how we take care of the world. And the, the, the teacher, he's, he's descri- what he's saying is like, think of it this way. Imagine you're all on a ship, and the ship gets hit by, hit by an iceberg, and it's going to go down in 12 hours. And you run to the captain, and you say, Captain, we've got to get to the boiler room, because when the boiler explodes, the ship is going to go down two minutes faster. And the captain's going to look at you and says, we're all going to die. What does two minutes mean? Who cares? This is what the teacher is saying. Why we're so concerned about even the environment and climate change and, and, and global warming and all that kind of stuff, it's pointless because it's all going down anyway. Now, I'm not, t- I'm not telling you you don't have to recycle. I'm not telling you that you should not care and just throw your garbage out your car window when you're driving. I am not saying that. I'm telling you the logic of the teacher. He gives one more reason why life is meaningless because maybe your response is, well, then I will create my own meaning. If there is no grand, massive meaning for me to be a part of, I will create my own meaning. I will deny myself no pleasure. I will just be happy. That's the meaning of life. What's the meaning of life? Discover what makes you happy. Pursue it. Be happy. Find fulfillment. That's it. And he says, won't work. Won't work. Verses 7 and 8. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they will return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. And what he's describing is, is human nature. And he says, look, human nature, human desire is insatiable. It is a bottomless pit. I remember once talking to a recovering cocaine addict and he was describing his addiction and, and how bad it had gotten and he said, he said at one point, I'll never forget, I couldn't believe it. He said, you know, no amount of cocaine was enough. He said, a Mount Everest pile high of cocaine would not have been enough to satisfy my addiction. And what he was describing really is frankly just the, the problem of the human heart. Your problem's not cocaine, I hope, but you got your problems too. Many of you know Deion Sanders. Deion Sanders was a, a, one of the few two-sport players. He was a Major League Baseball player and an NFL football player. He was a much better football player than baseball player probably. And he won two Super Bowls. I believe it was two. But anyhow, he describes after winning a Super Bowl... He he describes what happened to him afterwards, and this is what he said in an interview. He said, I remember winning the Super Bowl that year, and that night after the game, I was the first one out of the locker room, the first one to the press conference, and the first one to go home. And I remember my wife, Carolyn, saying to me, baby, you just won the Super Bowl. Don't you have a party downstairs or something to go to? And I just said, nah, and rolled over and went to sleep. That was the same week I bought myself a brand new $275,000 Lamborghini. 
And I hadn't even driven a mile before, in it before I realized, nope, that's not it. That's not what I'm looking for. It's got to be something else. God, I am so hungry. What a moment of clarity, hey? Like, you think your desire for the iPhone 10 is nothing, no big thing. Like, oh, yeah, I'd like another gadget. You know, I've got an iPhone 6 or an iPhone 7, but now the iPhone 10 is coming. You think that's... You think that's nothing, but what it is is a symptom. It's a symptom of this deep, profound insatiability, or insatiableness, I should say, within the human heart to acquire, to fill itself up with all kinds of things. And the teacher understands this because you know what? He actually tried it out. We're going to talk more about it next week. But listen, in verse 17, he describes how he lived both kinds of lives. He said, I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and, and also of madness and folly, but I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. He says, I, attri- I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom. It's like he's saying, look, I, I tried living the highbrow life, okay? I got degrees, I went to grad school, I thought real hard about all this kind of stuff. I I lived a sophisticated life. I went to the symphony. I did wine tastings. I toured vineyards. I did it all. I hung out with the smarty smarts. And and I found it was empty. So then I said, well, I'll try, okay. I'll try try the lowbrow life, you know? I'm not sure what exactly what the lowbrow life is, but certainly it's, it's the life of, okay, I'll, I'll discover what's right for me. I'll discover my own, my own sort of meaning. I'll create it, and I'll go to Burning Man. I don't know. I'll, 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 I'll watch Jackass, the, the movie, and, and, and watch the Trailer Park Boys and just live for today like a, like a goofball and, and just enjoy life. And he discovered that's a chasing after the wind too. I did what felt good. I did what my mind I used, I tried to understand with my mind that didn't work. I tried to just do what felt good, and I found out that it's all meaningless in the end. And why is it meaningless in the end? Because if your beginning is meaningless and your end is meaningless, then the part in between is going to be meaningless too. If your origins have no purpose and no meaning to them, and your destiny, you're not going anywhere, there's no purpose or meaning to your destiny, then that means your present life means nothing either. And that's why by the end of the chapter in verse 18, he says, for with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. That's why people don't want to think about it. It is depressing. Maybe you came to church this morning, you're like all happy and you're like, oh, new year and I've already worked on some of my resolutions and it's going really well and you know, I've already lost one-eighth of one pang. You know, the alarm clock goes. You're supposed to wake up for work, and you just hit snooze for five or six or seven times. You're like, well, it's all pointless and meaningless anyway. Why get up and go to work? You know, why do the dishes, really? Just chuck them in the backyard. Um, it's a little bit... Huh, what am I trying to... <laughs> I'm just thinking about... I tried to grow a beard, I could say to my wife, well, what's the point? Like, why shave? I guess I still want her to kiss me. But, um, it's a little bit like what he says in verse 15, eh? He says, 
What is twisted cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. He looks out across the world and he says, well, it's, it's all crooked. It's all twisted. It's all screwed up. It's all broken. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And here we are just part of this messed up machine without any meaning or any purpose in our life. And you know, you can lead you to utter despair, but you all know deep down in your soul you cannot live that way. Nobody can live that way. Friedrich Nietzsche tried to live that way. He, he came to this conclusion too, right? Friedrich Nietzsche, one of the modern philosophers who, through whom we discovered something called nihilism, a, 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 a certain worldview, he took this conclusion to its, well, to its logical conclusion, and it actually drove him mad, and he, and he ended his life in an insane asylum. So what do we do now? Well, I mentioned before that Ecclesiastes is a book of questions, right? And so it's always pushing us to search for answers, but you kind of got to get those answers elsewhere, all right? But notice the hint. We get a hint because he keeps talking about living a life under the sun. This is the certain kind of life he's describing. This is a life that there is no God, there is no heaven, there is no spiritual reality, there is no eternity. There's just what you see in front of you right here, right now. But what if that's not how it has to be? What if an indifferent universe is not all there is? Long after the teacher was dead and gone, Scripture talks about another wise man coming into the world, and he looked and he saw a horizontal world that was broken and crooked and twisted and screwed up too, but he was different. He was different from the teacher of Ecclesiastes. John the Baptist, who knew him very, very well, one time said this about him. And this is from John chapter 3, verses 31 and following. He said, the one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. But the one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. The man who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one, listen to this, for the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. John the Baptist described the man Jesus Christ. And he said, this was a man who was like no other man. He didn't come just from the horizontal plane that we find ourselves in. He was sent from above. He was the son of God who punched a hole in the roof of the world and he climbed in and he lived a life of perfect holiness and perfect understanding, not just under the son, but under the father. And he speaks for God and he came to do what? What did he come to do? He came to give us back our purpose. He came to give us back our meaning the teacher says that what was crooked could not be made straight. It was broken. It was crooked. The, the, this thing was, was, was insurmountable. It was a problem that could not be solved, but Jesus Christ, because of who he is, could solve the problem because he's not just from below, he's from above. And in his death and in his resurrection, he reconciled heaven and earth. He reconciled life under the sun with life above the sun so that you would never be forgotten. You know that scripture says that the names of his people are engraven on his hands. 
They're engraven on his hands, resurrected hands, hands that will never die. So they, those are names that will never be forgotten. And time itself will not win because you see, he purchased eternity for us. He purchased eternity for us so that this world is not all there is and, and this history is not all there is so that when the sun finally burns out like an old light bulb, that's not the end of the story. It's the beginning of the next chapter, the chapter of eternity for you and for me. And what that means then, you see, here's the, the final kicker, is that means that right now does count forever. What you do in this life, it's my favorite line from the movie Gladiator, what we do in this life echoes in eternity. What you do right now as you love your family or as you, as you try to make the world a better place in your small way, even if it's, you know, I'm listening to Jordan Peterson right now a little bit. He's this, 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 he's this crazy U of T professor who is not a believer, but he's like sticking up for the Bible. It's like in this life, you can have eternal significance no matter what you're doing. He talks about, it was a brilliant, he talked about even you can be a cashier in a grocery store and you have the choice by the way you are a cashier, you can bring a little bit of hell or a little bit of heaven into the lives of your customers just by how you are a cashier. You can put a smile on your face and say, how are you today, darling? That's what one cashier at the Metro always says to me. I love her. She calls me darling. <laughs> how are you today, darling? You can make that person's two or three or four or five minutes of that day that much better, or you can choose to make their lives miserable. Your life has cosmic significance, even in the little things that you do. Why, though? Because... The story of God coming into this world in the person of Jesus Christ gives it that significance. Is life meaningless? No. Where can we find meaning? In Him. That's the thread we're going to follow for the rest of these weeks together. Let's pray. God Almighty, help us to believe the truth that there is meaning and significance to life. There is meaning to, and significance to our actions and activities. It matters. It matters not just for now, but forever. And it matters because Jesus Christ has overcome the obstacles to meaninglessness. He's given us uh, communion with the divine that is a relationship with you and he's given us victory over the very things that, that seek to steal meaning from us. Never-ending inconsequential time and space and sin and death, annihilation. Thank you for him and for all that he is for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.